Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you were given the power and the imagination to create an ideal community, what would you envision? Not necessarily externals like location and weather and all those kinds of things, but simply how the inhabitants would treat one another. So in your mind, what are the non-negotiables for healthy human relationships? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 lays out a hopeful and an honest vision for our lives together. And in the end, few things matter more than being able to have our relationships work. For our families to be characterized by trust and respect. For our church body to possess authentic compassion, forgiveness, and giving preference to one another. As God's people, we are called to such realities. And the Lord has designed to make it within our reach. Last week, Drew taught on Ephesians 4, on verses 17 to 24. And his main point was that the Christian life involves a continual process of transformation from the inside out. He provided the scriptural framework for renewal. We're involved in ongoing change in our affections, desires, orientation, and character by the work of the Spirit with whom we participate. In that section, we read how the Ephesian Christians were at one time hardened in their hearts, possessing darkened understanding and impure lives. And then starting in verse 20, the author commands them to put off their old self, corrupted with deceitful desires, and put on their new self, which is created after the likeness of God. As we're going to read today in the passage, verses 25 and following, I want you to listen for the rhythm of putting off and putting on. And note how the Apostle Paul alternates between something to avoid and its opposite to embrace. So let's turn, if you have the Scriptures with you, to Ephesians 4, and we'll continue our study in this book. So today it's Ephesians 4.25 through chapter 5, verse 2, and I'm going to start reading with verse 20 to give the context for this section today. So Ephesians 4.20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of the other. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, he may be, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 25 begins with the word, therefore, signaling that he will now be moving from principle in the earlier passage to practice. Beginning in verse 25, Paul supplies us with warnings of what deceitful human desires may produce in community. And while at the same time, he paints a portrait of a new society that is shaped by and reflective of the image of God. This section not only begins with therefore in verse 25, also in chapter 5, verse 1, it has the word therefore. These two bookends mark off for us a number of penetrating exhortations on how to live together within the body of Christ. Now you might have heard the six examples of practical behavior that Paul highlights within our relationships. And in most of these examples, a negative prohibition is balanced by a corresponding positive one. And further, in each case, a reason or motivation is supplied for each command. We are reminded of what not to do, what to do, and why. And as we train a child, we we wisely include all three of these. So you might have a toddler or have had a toddler in the past or seen one and this toddler reaches and quickly grabs a toy from someone who they're playing with and we would say to them uh, gently don't don't grab that give that back to him and at that point the child would know these are the rules these are the expectations of my parent and so I need to fall in line with those to please my parent and do the right thing But wise training adds another element, which is the reason behind the prohibition. So we would say, would you please give that back to him? It belongs to him. Teaching them about property. This is not yours, it belongs to someone else. Or you could say, give it back to him, everyone will get a turn. So then child can relax and trust the fact that there's joy in mutual sharing. This helps the child move from an external to an internal motivation. And so this section of Scripture seeks to do the same thing for us. What not to do, what to do, and why. This passage climaxes with the command to love, which summarizes the preceding admonitions. Christ's sacrificial death is set forth as the standard and motivation for our love. So to organize our study, we'll divide these verses into three sections. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit and be imitators of God, the first two verses of chapter 5. These lists of our behaviors toward one another are punctuated by our underlying relationship with the spiritual world. When a biblical writer creates a list of behaviors to either emulate or avoid, it can be a temptation to be caught up in the details of the human interaction and forget to lift our eyes above the horizontal aspects of human relationships. We do not want to ignore the invisible spiritual realm. Throughout the passage, Paul draws our attention to our relationship with the Lord 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, in fact, is the primary source that determines how we will relate to those around us. And so what I'm saying is, if you notice from the three points, there's nothing on there about behavior or about what we should or shouldn't do. Our approach, no matter how genuine, must go beyond simply creating a list of acceptable and unacceptable behaviors to which we will apply our own supreme effort. So take a look at our outline. This passage calls us to create a healthy community, but the path to achieve it is not by solely focusing on our behaviors toward each other. We're to stand against the enemy of our souls, not frustrate or disappoint the Spirit, and align our character and actions with the pattern of Jesus' sacrificial love. What a relief that there's a source of insight and transforming power and hope that comes from outside of us and beyond ourselves and our flawed attempts to forge loving communities. So let's start with the first section. As Paul addresses what of the old man must put off, he begins with three vices, lies, anger, and theft. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Speaking truth is in keeping with our new nature, and it should be a distinguishing mark of our communication. In fact, in verse 21, we read, You have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is found in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Simply put, we should be honest and reliable, those who can be trusted, because we belong to and represent the source of all that is true. So we could ask ourselves, consider those at your school, the office, the job site, your neighborhood, in your own home. Would they describe you as genuine and without pretense? Or can you sometimes be loose with the facts or hedge the truth or cover yourself to protect exposure, stretch, exaggerate, or twist things to your advantage? Now, of course, none of us are without faults in many areas, but might there be an area where you need to shore up truth-telling a bit? I think we're all aware that this is quite an unfriendly time for the truth. Our culture, it seems, is sinking in a sea of misrepresentation, posturing, and openly false statements masquerading as true. It's the triumph of the subjective over the objective, and perception is fighting to become reality. But it must not be so for followers of Christ. For us, all that belongs to uh, to the deceitful schemes mentioned in verse 14 and to deceitful desires in verse 22 are to be abandoned. The reason Paul cites is that we are members one of the other. He brings us back to his teaching in verses 12 through 16 that the church is the body of Christ. Now, how could a body operate effectively if one part did not communicate truthfully? Just think of yourself. What if your nervous system hid the fact that there was serious pain somewhere in your body or that hunger was never communicated? A body cannot survive without truth among its members. 
Have you ever been lied to in the church? On the other hand, have you ever been told a courageous truth by someone in the church family? One tears down, one builds us all toward that unity and maturity that we long for. A body thrives with truth among its members. That's what we experienced at the men's retreat, men's retreat a few weeks ago. On Saturday morning, we had over 160 men and young men gathered, and we had 40 minutes of open sharing. It wasn't really announced ahead of time. It wasn't planned for. But for 40 minutes, we didn't know how long it would last or how much guys would want to talk. Over 150 men in a room, and man after man stood up and shared from their hearts, trusting each other, encouraging one another. Across our church in small groups, Friday morning men's study, ministry teams, habits of the heart discussion groups, leadership teams, and countless friendships, truth is being spoken. And the goal is to abandon lives of pretense and artificiality, to establish meaningful friendships of unveiled reality. So take a moment now and just look around, just look across Look at a few people. See some faces. Wave, say hi, whatever you want to do. We belong to one another. And this is what Paul is saying. We behave this way because we belong to each other. Fellowship is built on trust. And trust is built on truth. And aren't you grateful for what the Lord is doing in building that right here among us? That having put away falsehood, each of us is speaking truth to one another. Paul continues his specific exhortations to put on the new man in verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. The force of this scripture is to permit and restrict anger rather than to command it. One scholar paraphrases it this way. Let your anger be mixed. Let not your anger be mixed with sin. Scripture describes two kinds of anger, righteous and unrighteous. And since verse 26 does not call anger sin in and of itself, it seems the reference here is to righteous indignation. While later in verse 31, the anger that is to be put away is, of course, unrighteous anger. So there is a time and a place for Christian anger. In the face of evil, intentional disobedience, harm to the innocent, we should be indignant, not apathetic. As lovers of truth and justice, we should be motivated to action. In this teaching to permit but restrict anger, Paul qualifies the statement, be angry, with three negatives. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not sin in your anger. The Lord possesses anger. Ephesians 5, 6 states the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Jesus, as the healthiest human and being fully divine, expressed anger during his earthly ministry. We know that the Lord, in his perfection, only has righteous anger. But we must be careful in assessing and expressing ours. It is possible to label one's anger as righteous indignation, when it is actually laced with injured pride or vengeance, defensiveness, spite, 
selfishness, or even manipulative control. James 1 tells us this warning. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Given humanity's futility of mind and darkened understanding, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, the twisted passions of our old man would do well to consult the book of Proverbs. Here are four examples from that book in speaking about anger. The first in Proverbs 29. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. We learn that a wise person gives a soft answer and is slow to anger. It requires physical strength to take a city in battle, but there's a more profound strength in the one who rules his own irritations, resentments, and passions after being offended. The statement, be angry and do not sin, is taken directly from Psalm 4, which provides provides a marvelous unfolding of a proper expression of personal anger. And so I commend that for your reading this week. Take a look at Psalm 4. The second qualifier is do not let the sun go down on your anger. In the Old Testament, an employer of poor servants was required to pay them wages daily before the sun goes down. And so the the thought is, what occurs during the day needs to be handled that day. In a similar way, this reference to sunset is a warning to not brood or to nurse one's anger, for it to last longer than it should. It is to be dealt with promptly, seeking a resolution within oneself before the Lord or reconciliation with the parties involved. The third qualifier is give no opportunity to the devil. We learn in Ephesians 2.6 that believers are raised with Christ and seated with Him, yet we're currently engaged in spiritual warfare against the forces of darkness that harass us here. We'll hear more about spiritual warfare when we get to chapter 6 in our study, but here in chapter 4 we see that the battleground, this spiritual battleground, is in our hearts and in our lives. The devil knows how hard it is for us to handle our anger responsibly. He hopes to exploit the situation and provoke us to damage relationships, to hurt each other, and to undermine unity. Paul is outlining a number of ways that characterize the old man. Lying, anger, and then later on stealing and unwholesome talk. These all presumably are occasions of spiritual battle in which the devil seeks a place or a foothold to disrupt what God loves, which is His people living out the divine nature. There's a hidden reality, a darkened spiritual realm that is aware of you and wants to take advantage of any spiteful, harsh, or argumentative reactions 
that you might have. When you and I sin in our anger, the devil gains traction, gets a leg up in his insidious strategies to harm us and undermine God's righteous kingdom. That's quite a thought, isn't it? And for most, a lot of us who've been around the church, around the scriptures for most of our lives or for a number of years, we, we recognize that there's a spiritual battle, there's an invisible world. But it just does good to just stop and actually think about that. That someone, an invisible being that God has created who's turned against him and his purposes, watches you, is with you, is aware of you. We don't know how all that works and how many there are, but we know that that's true. And will take advantage of me if in an irritated tone I'm angry, if I sin in those emotions. Something happens. And that's a great imagery, foothold, right? So the devil gets a, a place to be able to get traction and to move against you and to move against the body of Christ where we're members of one another. There's an important aside that bears mentioning in regards to this passage. Last month I mentioned our men's retreat and uh, Taylor Sutton did a fabulous job teaching on true masculinity in our relationships with women. We were exhorted to protect and love well the women and girls in our lives. The biblical teaching on anger brings to mind a significant issue as we seek to develop godly men in our church to care for women. The truth is that a hidden and destructive anger resides in our society that needs to be redeemed. Difficult to uncover and challenging to talk about, it's the controlling, hurtful, and destructive abuse of men against women. Specifically, it can occur from a husband to a wife or a boyfriend to a girlfriend. The fact that men have physical strength and leadership is not inherently a problem. It is the misuse of power, not merely its presence, that is problematic. This kind of male abuse occurs in a minority of relationships, but it's happening more than most of us would expect. And studies show that it's as prevalent in churches as it is in the rest of culture. And this is tragic. Now, the reason to mention this this morning is twofold. First, to call to repentance any man who's using anger and power to dominate or hurt the women or girls in his life. Second, it is critical for the church, for its leadership, and for the men in the church to express care and protection for women. So I have an important encouragement if you're a man or a woman who finds yourself in a destructive cycle of anger and mistreatment. Please reach out and seek help. Talk to a trusted friend or to a leader. As a pastoral counselor, I would welcome speaking with anyone, having a conversation to seek hope and healing together. It is not good for the church to be silent on these kinds of things. Next, in verse 28, the list continues. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do not steal was the eighth commandment of Moses' law. 
In Romans 13, the commandments were recounted, and Paul adds this commentary in verse 9. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so Christians were told to not steal. That prohibition is followed by a positive command which reflects the new man. Do honest work with your own hands so you'll have something to share with anyone in need. They were expending energy in for sure, these, these thieves, but their effort and cunning were being spent to wrong their neighbor. Now it's to be invested in honest labor, not only to benefit their own family, but to contribute to the needs of others. Most of us understand and value the ethic of not stealing. We recognize the rights of private property, and as we would not want our stuff stolen, we don't take other people's stuff. And the norm in our church family is being engaged in honest work with our own hands. But Paul takes our responsibility one step further. Those living from the new man work hard to earn resources in order to give some of them away to someone in need. So we can start with this question. In your heart of hearts, have you found a reason that happily obliges you to give away more than the minimum? I'm convicted by the question, would my friends and any casual observer of my life consider me generous? Paul uses the phrase, share with anyone in need. So my circle of generosity needs to be wider than simply my family and friends. Have you ever wondered why the Lord has given us such material blessing? Each one of us. Is it to amass and spend and enjoy it on ourselves and our families? Perhaps not. All good things come from God. He blesses them with us, but it's not just for us to enjoy. They've been given to also spread to others. In, in this list of exhortations, we, to love well in our Christian relationship, verse 29 returns us to the topic of the words that we speak. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So this is the second section now. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Believers are to contribute to the good with their own hands, but also with their mouths. Our speech is to be beneficial to others. First, in putting off the old self, we're to utter no corrupting talk. This Greek word corrupted signifies something that is rotten and disseminates rottenness. It was used to describe rotten trees. Thus, our speech is to be free of abusive language and vulgar speech, slander, and contemptuous talk. The point is to avoid harmful speech. Paul encourages us to replace harmful speech with that which builds up. The word here is edify. It's a construction term which pictures a building being advanced toward completion. Thus, our words are to advance one another toward completion, toward the sanctifying work of the Spirit and to growing to maturity. This is done according to the need of the moment. So the new man is aware, perceptive, listening, 
engaged in the lives and needs of others in order to speak a timely word. And the outcome is for grace to be given to those who hear. Think about the gift of speech for a moment. God speaks purposefully, and He shares this capacity with us. Words are a means to an end. They're tools, instruments to accomplish an objective. So what should be the aim of our speech? To what end do we speak? Paul gives us three. To build up, to meet a timely need, and to give grace. A friend of mine this week uh, told me about a helpful acrostic, WAIT, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? (laughs) So take that on yourself. Don't throw that on other people. But it's not why are you talking. Why am I talking? But it helps us to be circumspect, right? To what purpose do I use my words? Why am I speaking now? Is this for my benefit, for someone else's benefit? There's all kinds of good reasons to talk, but it's just nice to be thinking about that, this great gift that we've been given, to be purposeful in that. The right words at the right time for the right reasons. That's 29. The right words at the right time for the right reasons. Paul now provides motivation regarding our speech, and it's linked to the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This instruction parallels the exhortation to not give the devil a foothold. Paul is aware that behind our lives in this physical realm, there are active, invisible personalities. And so he offers two contrasting prohibitions. Do not give opportunity to the evil one, and do not distress the Holy Spirit. Well, what... what grieves the Holy Spirit. Well, being the Holy Spirit, he's grieved by anything unholy, like corrupted speech. We read in chapter 4 that the Spirit is the divine agent of reconciliation and unity for God's people. So sins that especially divide and fragment the body, creating discord, are grievous to him. The church, God's new community, is meant to be His display on earth of what God has accomplished. The daily, seemingly insignificant choices surrounding your words, your emotional displays of frustration, sharing resources, the mundane life of honest work, these are all being played out on the stage of an epic battle. We can please the Spirit of God, and advance his cause for unity and holiness, or we can sadden him and give opportunities for your destructive enemy to further his assault. In verses 31 and 32, Paul specifies another exchange of removing and putting on. 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In keeping with stripping off the old man, the believer removes the vices associated with anger. This list appears to be climactic, starting on the inside and then working to the outside. Bitterness, wrath, and anger are all initially personal and internal. 
Clamor and slander are verbal and outwards. And it's, all of these are characterized by all malice. The first to be removed is bitterness, the spite that harbors resentment and keeps a score of wrongs. Wrath is a passionate rage, an outburst of uncontrolled frustration. Next is anger, which is really a sullen and settled hostility. Clamor describes those who raise their voices in a quarrel and shout at one another. Slander is speaking ill of others, especially behind their backs, defaming their reputation. The sixth word is malice, meaning ill will, wishing and even plotting evil against someone. So what do followers of Christ display? When someone sees a Christian pass by, what is the Christian wearing? What have they put off? What is their attire? They're clothed in the kind of qualities that characterize the behavior of God and His Christ. First, kindness, showing a generous disposition. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. This type of kindness does not come naturally. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, a new affection of the new man. Tenderheartedness refers to compassion, being sympathetic to the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgiving one another is literally acting in grace to each other, as God in Christ acted in grace to us. What would prompt a person to move about in this fierce, harsh, and often ruthless world with a posture of kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness? How does it even make sense? How can a Christian who's been hurt or misunderstood or marginalized in the church actually forgive? We expect to find safety and acceptance and connection in a church. But sometimes we're disappointed by God's people. Chapter 4 concludes with this profound motivation as God in Christ forgave you. So having experienced the firsthand the kindness and forgiveness of the Lord, we freely extend that to those who don't deserve it any more than we do. Which brings us to chapter 5 and our third point, be imitators of God. So 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitation is an active process. It begins with observation. And then it's followed by intentional replication, repeating, copying what is seen. In 424, Paul declares that we're created after the righteousness of God and now exhorts us to imitate God. This is the only place in the New Testament where believers are given this specific command. This appeal to imitate God in Ephesians 5 is based on our new relationship with Him. We are in His family, His adopted, beloved children. And have you ever noticed the joyful and natural mimicry of a child for His loving parent? The continual presence, the authority, the loving bond, the strength, and the wisdom of a parent naturally draws a child to imitate. And God has created children that way. So my identity as a beloved child secures my place as one who deserves and desires to imitate 
my heavenly Father. And the fact that I am now a partaker of his divine nature, that I'm indwelt by his spirit, I'm no longer trapped in my old man, gives me the capacity to fruitfully imitate him. Of course, it's not possible to fully imitate our infinite God. He's the creator, we're the creature. So Paul clarifies specifically in verse 2 one way that we are called to imitate. In verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 1 and 2 parallel each other. To imitate God is to walk in love. The model for this is Jesus Christ and the love he demonstrated for us at the cross. He's innocent, we're guilty, we are needy, and he came and died for our benefit. Didn't have to do that, willingly. Went through the pain, the difficulty, separation from the Heavenly Father for our benefit. The imitation of God is ultimately the imitation of Christ. Costly sacrificial love will characterize his followers in their relationships with one another. That means that we will mirror our master. Like Jesus, we lay down our lives for the good of others. This is the life of a new community where we give up ourselves for love. This is such a Trinitarian passage. Imitate God, love like the Son, do not grieve the Spirit. And it's good as we pursue these things to remember that the aim of imitation is to eventually become like rather than simply act like. To become like rather than to just act like. C.S. Lewis explains this in his book, Mere Christianity. He's on a discussion about justice and the virtues. He writes, There's a difference between doing some particular just or temperate action and being a just or temperate man. Someone who's not a good tennis player may now and then make a good shot. What you mean by a good player is the man whose eye and muscles and nerves have been so trained by making innumerable good good shots that they now can be relied on. They have a certain tone or quality which is there even when he's not playing. In the same way, a man who perseveres in doing just actions gets in the end a certain quality of character. Now it is that quality rather than the particular actions which we mean when we talk of virtue. We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. To walk in love is to be a loving person in your character and disposition that flow from the new man. Here are eight questions that you can take with you and think about. We'll have these uh, after we're done with the service. I'll keep those up on the screen for you. Here's just some things to think about as we've worked through these, these, uh, these scriptures. When am I tempted to not tell the truth? What kind of opportunity is the devil finding in my anger? I don't suppose that all of these will apply to all of us, but you might find one that the Lord would particularly want you to consider. Number three, ask those closest to you, does one of us use anger to hurt or control the other? 
Who is someone in need I could be generous with? What would be added or removed from my conversations if I determined to actively build up others? God in Christ forgave me. Is there someone the Lord wants me to likewise forgive? What would motivate me to more directly seek to imitate God? Where does Jesus want me to walk in costly, sacrificial love like him? We are God's new community, a people who have put off the old life and put on the new. That is what the Lord has made us. So let's be who we are. Lord, we are humbled and we are convicted when we realize uh, the glory and the beauty and the perfection and the holiness of who you are and how we fall short of that. Thank you that you have such provision for us in your Son and in the Spirit and in community. We want to be like you. Thank you in all the ways that you've given us these magnificent promises in your Spirit. Please work among us. Encourage us. Build us up. Have this be really a celebration of the reasons for us to follow these things and a celebration that is possible through you. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll stand, we're going to conclude with a song. Katie Smith's going to come and lead us. She's going to sing the first two stanzas for us, and then we'll sing uh, the two after that. And this is a hymn of consecration, and it talks about your lips, which is our speech. It talks about your hands, which is that honest labor that we are to do. It talks about our hearts. So what we're doing is we're presenting those to God um, for his benefit and for his use. Katie.